0: Purposey Podcasts, we deliberately speak to social entrepreneurs, charity founders, and all round awesome people to hear their founder story. Hi, my name is Mark Longbottom, and I'm normally the host of Purposey Podcasts. However, third, episode 31 is something a bit different. Instead of an inspirational figure, you just got me. Um, I recently featured on Devi O'Connor's Charity CEO podcast, talking about my role at Heart Kids and also about being a podcaster. Anyway, I hope you enjoy learning a bit about myself, and most importantly, you can draw something from the episode. Before we head to the show, and if you like what you're hearing, can I ask you to share Purposely Podcast with at least one friend? I really want to grow my audience, and I think it's the best way of doing it. Someone who you think will relate to the content and get something from it. Also, don't forget, it's free to download, accessible wherever it suits you, and whatever platform. Subscribe, and if you're on Apple iTunes, you can always leave a review. Anyway, pitch over, enjoy the show.
1: Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. So great to have you with us.
0: Yeah, really good to be on the show and excited about our conversation.
1: Yes, I must admit, I'm really excited to be interviewing a fellow podcaster. And you have the added honor of being the first international guest on the Charity CEO podcast, calling in all the way from Auckland in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, 12,000 miles away and opposite ends of the day.
1: I know, I know, although we managed to sort of get it in sensible times, sort of early morning for you and late night for me, so it's not too bad. Yeah. So, Mark, I think you know that I like to start the show with an icebreaker round of some get to know you questions so if you're ready, let's get going. Sure. Question one, what was your first job?
0: First job for me was straight Out of Uni, working for the Auckland City Mission, which is a welfare charity. And I joined them to work with children, which didn't quite get off the ground and uh, ended up doing some other stuff for them, but a a really good first job for a great charity, helping people in poverty, those who are homeless, and a real learning curve for me personally.
1: Wow. And I know you've sort of taken that through then in terms of the rest of your career as well. So anyway, let's go on with the icebreaker round. Question two, as a child, what did you dream of becoming when you grew up?
0: This is a really easy one for me. I absolutely hundred percent wanted to be a pro footballer, uh, and dreamed wow. of yeah. I tr- I dreamed of being or playing in goal for Tottenham Hotspur at White Hart Lane, and in fact I remember this primary school teacher allowing us an hour a week to do what we dreamed of and what we want to do when we we're older. So me and a friend just played football for an hour. And he shot goals at me because I was the goalkeeper. So, yeah, I didn't quite make it. In fact, in my school yearbook later in life when I was at high school, if you looked up the yearbook, you can see, uh, slightly embarrassingly, uh, dream to play for Tottenham Hotspur. Reality, will move to London and get a season ticket. And that was very future-proof, that prediction. So, yeah, a, a footballer.
1: Well, that part of your dream did come true because you did move to London and presumably you did get a season ticket to see Tottenham.
0: I did get that season ticket, although because of children, I'll blame, you know, four children. But I only did that for one single season. But yeah, I got to enough games to, to sort of be happy.
1: Excellent. So talking about school, the next question is what was the naughtiest thing you did at school?
0: I was actually really good. So I went to, for a period of time, I went to an all boys Catholic school where, um, this will shock our younger listeners, but they would cane or strap people who did things wrong. And I managed to go through the whole of those four years without getting either caned or strapped. I think as as naughty as it got, I might have blocked up the slide And ended up in the headmaster's office for blocking up the slide and not letting people down. But still to this day, actually, I don't particularly like getting in trouble. Doesn't mean I don't live life on the edge sometimes, because I do. But as long as I don't get in trouble, that's fine.
1: (laughs) I love that. So killer question for you now, Mark. New Zealand or the UK?
0: (sighs) That's the hardest question. That is so, so difficult. I mean, it feels like right now. New Zealand's a really easy answer, sadly. And I look back to the UK with the pandemic and think, really hoping it's going to turn around there. For family, this is a long answer, didn't it? But for family, absolutely. New Zealand, for the laid-back lifestyle, for, for, you know, jandals, shorts, beaches, chillaxing, just hanging, it's definitely New Zealand. And, and the UK for the kind of intensity of life, access to Europe, the football, of course. They're just a kind of culture I love. And yeah, I'm kind of split between two.
1: Yeah, you're giving a very balanced and diplomatic answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I tried to convince my parents to emigrate to New Zealand when I was 18, but they didn't really give me much time on that. So I just thought, you know what, I'll just do it myself. So yeah, love both countries.
1: Excellent. So our final icebreaker question, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world dead or alive. Who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them?
0: Bit of a serious answer, I'm afraid, but a very close friend of mine when I was 18, a guy called Jason Capner sadly took his own life and if I had uh, you know that power and I could interview anybody it would be probably less of an interview and more of a chat but it would be to touch base with Jason and say Kind of why? and you know, which I know is probably, probably the probably most serious answer you've had to this question. but you know it's not until people have gone and and that's very permanent loss and death, and a great opportunity to would be to to speak to him one more time. So yeah,
1: mm, yeah, I really feel that. and actually on that serious note, let's now turn to talking about your day job as the CEO of Heart Kids New Zealand, because it's certainly an organization that has a very serious and important cause at its heart, so to speak. Yeah. Tell us about your organization, what's its mission and purpose?
0: Yeah, so I haven't been in a role too long, so coming up seven months and that's been absolutely fantastic and feel it's a real privilege to be the chief executive. There's, in terms of mission and vision, the mission is to support all people living with congenital heart defects in New Zealand. Not only support, but also to in, help inform them and and their fa- uh, father or family. And another aim is to help to connect them with people who have also having the same lived experience. So we have this really unusual scenario where we actually help people of all ages, even though it's called Heart Kids. Anyone with a congenital heart defect, we will support when they need it. And need our support the most so in new zealand one in every 100 babies is born with a congenital heart defects and there's 40 known types of of heart defects so so it's really complicated and each year these there's over 500 major surgeries in new zealand so you know our work is intense and full on and our the need for us is 100 there so what we do is we don't do the medical piece, we don't do the research piece, but we focus on supporting that psychosocial element. You know, people are really run over by congenital heart defects and it affects all elements of their life. And we've got a team of about 40 people operating all around New Zealand, along with some really dedicated volunteers across the country and offering that support to those people in and out of hospital, because it, in New Zealand there's only one major paediatric intensive care unit. There's only one major paediatric surgery hospital, which is, is in Auckland, not which is not the capital, but it's the largest city.
1: There's only one in the whole country.
0: One hospital that can do those paediatric operations, wow. those cardiac operations. Exactly. So families, if you can picture the scenario, you know, might be a family who are diagnosed at the bottom end of the South Island, because these two islands, I'm in the North and that hospital's in the North. And they have to come up to Auckland for, a treat, for treatment, for checkups, for those operations. It's hugely disturbing to those families. And what we do, very simply, is we support them in their region, in their town, but also when they're in Auckland. So we bridge those two things for them and help them with the practical things in life, as well as some of the emotional things in life.
1: Yes. Such an important cause. And I understand, Mark, that you actually have a real personal connection to the charity and its cause. And I'm referring here to the story about your cousin, Kylie. So tell us about Kylie and then how that led to you getting first involved with HeartKids.
0: Yeah. So, you know, first of all, it was a great challenge professionally. And, you know, on a professional level, I feel like I really understand service delivery charities, which we are. But from a personal level, My cousin Kylie, Kylie Henderson, she was born just after me in the early 70s, and thankfully she was born then and she wasn't born in the 60s because of surgery advances. It gave her a bigger opportunity of surviving, and that's what she has done, survive, which is fantastic. Growing up, I just remember her being different, and I remember her being really celebrated by our family, so it's my sister's brother's child, Kylie, and first cousin. And she had two things that were visible to me. So she had a really large scar on her chest, which was visible to us when we we're swimming or, you know, so that was really different. And she also had a different sounding voice, which was from when she was born, her brain was starved of oxygen. She had two major surgeries, which I wasn't cognizant at the time, but Learned about later, but as a kid growing up, I was being quite intrigued by it. And then here we go, you know, many many years later. Her and I recently met for a for lunch and for a coffee, which she had booked, I paid for, and she was giving me a hard time about what I need to do for her now. I'm CEO of Hartkins New Zealand in support of her and her life, and she's gone on to a really successful career and overcome and doing childcare and overcome some of those difficulties around the brain injury, which kind of just affects her memory. You know, she's very switched-on woman, but she has challenges in life. So real serendipity for me, I guess. It feels really good to be making a difference to people's lives when I've had that kind of close experience with a cousin and Kylie's going to keep me honest in my role.
1: I love that she was giving you a hard time
0: (laughs) She really was. And she'll continue to give you a hard time actually. I think the challenge we've got is with children and families is, is the majority of our work and majority of our focus. And for adults, it's it's sometimes more complicated. So, you know, there's employment issues, housing issues, emotional issues, connecting with other people who have been through the same thing. So some of that stuff. And you know, we've got like a lot of charities, we've got limited resources, but she will keep me honest, that's for sure. And it makes just For me, being very selfish, it helps me feel much more connected to the cause because I've I've kind of been around it for so long and I know what her family went through, you know, because it actually, there's no cure to CHD, you know, throughout life, there's huge ups and downs and actually real trauma attached to it because you build up to operations and people have to have transplants and whether they're going to find a donor what's going to happen during the operation and these kind of limitations in life as well and Kylie definitely had some limitations on you know sports and, and other activities but it Kylie helps me feel connected so I'm grateful for that and I am going to do right by her that's the aim.
1: Excellent I mean that's certainly important as a chief exec of any organization and Mark thinking a bit more now about the global context. Even that you're in New Zealand, I have to say that your Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern has really been hailed as a leader who has handled the whole COVID-19 pandemic really, really well and without wanting to get too political in terms of comparisons, given that London is currently in lockdown restrictions. I'm really curious to know how things are right now in New Zealand with respect yeah. to the virus and social restrictions and also how the pandemic has impacted heart kids.
0: Yeah, sure. We, on a New Zealand context, we are very grateful that Jacinda Ardern is our Prime Minister. We had very clear communication from her from the very beginning of the pandemic. And I think that was, for me, that was sort of illustrated by My children often know more than I did about the the restrictions we had when we were in lockdown, but just that feeling of reassurance that they had and feeling of safe. So she's done an incredible job. She's a very modern, young prime minister. And she has used, you know, she's used TikTok, Twitter, all those social media things to get her messages across. But I think one of the reasons why New Zealand's fared well is well, apart from the obvious isolation, small population, is growing up, we have a real sense, we, and it's part of our curriculum at school around responding to disasters. So we have a load of earthquakes, which, you know, famously in Christchurch, killed a whole lot of people, but we have a whole lot of volcanoes, volcanic incidents, and you, it's just part of your curriculum at school and, and kind of jumping under under death so i think when these kind of the pandemic response kicked in and they talked about these different levels and we moved in and out of these levels it all felt really kind of reassuringly normal for new zealanders i think in terms of the impact on heart kids there's no doubt like our our income is down 30 percent but this is where the government kicked in and made a real difference so they made capital available to businesses and including charities very, very swiftly, like almost instantaneously. And we went into this really strict lockdown for about seven weeks in the end. We didn't think it was going to be seven weeks, but it was, but to the point where you could only go to the supermarket and you could only walk a mile or two from your house. And at the time, there was that real a team of five million, these five million people in New Zealand. You really feel like you're a part of something. And the plan all along was to go hard, which was quite a New Zealand saying, go hard and nail it and annihilation of the pandemic was where we went for that was sort of march time and then fast forward to august psychologically that was harder because we had another outbreak in auckland because people are still coming into the country even though they're isolating so the virus jumped of the border into the community and we had we did another lockdown i think psychologically that was probably more difficult for heart kids what's been really tough is interrupted operation schedules so those families i talked about that are in isolated other parts of new zealand you know suddenly had their either surgery or appointment with the cardiologist stopped or delayed so that was really tough and hands up to starship hospital which is one just up the road we we a really close relationship with they made sure that didn't happen and, and locked down too and planned really well for that but you know with children when you've got your mum and the father you've got three or four kids, you've got a kid with a congenital heart defect, they've got lowered immunity, you've got other children to concern yourself with. It's been really tough for our families and a lot of uncertainty about what they can and can't do. So to wrap it up, really, New Zealand being the position we are right today, which is very normal existence, you know, people are going to watch All Blacks in stadiums, there's crowded bars, life is almost normal. You get a reminder you're walking down the streets of Auckland and you'll come across a COVID hotel. And that's what that is. It's a two-week isolation period when returning Kiwis are coming back because they're still coming back in their droves, are doing their two week isolation. And you get a reminder then that life's not completely normal. And then also on public transport we're wearing masks as well as a precaution. But yeah, we feel very lucky. We've got family and Fano in in England and my in-laws live there. And my brother-in-law's just had COVID recently and feel desperately sad for for the fact that, they've you know, they've locked down for six or seven months now. Mm. And my in-laws, especially I think in their 60s, have both had cancer recently uh, and they feel, you know, they feel very isolated at times. And also they just can't wait to break out of that restriction. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your question.
1: Yes, uh, I know. You know, coming from the cancer sector myself, that there's so many people whose cancer diagnoses and treatments, etc., are being delayed. Cancer Research UK here is predicting something like three million people have had delays, and that we're going to see more than 200,000 deaths actually due to delays in accessing healthcare. So I think potentially things are going to get worse. So, But it's really interesting to hear that actually in New Zealand, the culture played a big role in everybody pulling together. And as you said, Mark, this whole concept of we're one team and go hard to nail it has really helped you, which I don't think here there's really that sense of a cohesive effort either for various reasons. And I don't think that the government has been great in actually pulling everybody together anyway, but not to dwell on that too much. I'd like to continue more on this theme of New Zealand versus UK, but more in the charity sector context, because I think you're actually very uniquely placed to talk about this. You're back in New Zealand now, but you've actually spent about 20 years working in the charity sector in the UK. Yeah. And I'm curious to know about what differences you have seen with respect to the charity sector in both countries. Are attitudes to philanthropy and charity different in New Zealand versus the UK? What's your perspective on that?
0: Yeah, good, good point. There's sort of probably three different ways I could discuss it. So, on the attitude to, to charity, if you just talk it sort of attitude, I think the Brits are incredibly generous. And, the, and it's, you know, if you look at the history of Britain with sort of parish set up and that's looking after people within their parishes and then broadly out to huge support for good causes and charities so it's a really developed sector in the uk new zealand there's more of a i'll do it myself mentality so we've got twenty seven thousand charities in new zealand in a population of 5 million people which is an incredible number
1: wow and i think
0: I, I think there's a sort of attitude in new zealand where like i can do this better myself this sort of slight I don't know, bloody mindedness or piggy-headedness or just she'll be right, mate. I'll sort this. Um, so, you know, a lot, a lot of charities, which means for really limited resources, they're spread quite thinly. And that's been a shock coming back. So, you know, I've, I've worked here before. I've had held, as I mentioned earlier, Auckland City Mission for four years, and I've worked for New Zealand AIDS Foundation for a year. So, in terms of resources, It's a lot slimmer here. There's a lot less trust and foundations, a lot less accessible funding. You have to work really hard for it. A lot of focus on community fundraising events. So that would be one element to it. Where I have seen more sophistication in New Zealand so far is this realization in the probably last four or five years that traditional program design to enact some sort of change on someone's life or support someone to make a difference to their lives. That sort of top-down approach where a charity designs something, rolls it out and then hopes for good has been kind of ripped up here a little bit. And I think that's probably helped by the fact that it's a relatively small country and things can, you know, when we fail, we fail fast. We can rip things up and start again relatively easily. So the word I'm thinking of really when I talk about that is, I call it kind of co-design where, or participatory design. You know, really fully involving stakeholders in the design of the charitable program. And this this is kind of motivated by New Zealand, surprisingly, even though it's, you know, clean, green, beautiful, huge tourism until COVID. But it's got really high stats around teen suicide. In fact, highest in the OECD countries, it's got really high stats when it comes to obesity, illiteracy and educational attainment, which is really shocking, and it's kind of meant that the sector, like if you took the New Zealand charity sector as a kind of whole, is really trying to do things differently and be very really innovative. And then it can be summarised by the fact that they are going to the groups of people who are struggling the most and they're saying, right, we've got this wrong, what's the problem and help us design the solution. And I think New Zealand feels a bit more ahead there in terms of, Where it's a bit behind, I would say, would be I've mentioned money and then also, you know, there's there's possibly not the talent pool here. So, you know, like there's a huge amount of experience and knowledge in the UK around management, people doing frontline delivery stuff. But I think that's probably going to change because we've had a huge influx of Kiwis coming back who have had overseas experience. So that will also impact on the charity sector. But, yeah, those sort of differences, I would say, were... Were evident to me when I came back recently.
1: Yeah, I really like that, Mark, in terms of applying principles of design thinking to solving society's big problems. And as you say, given that the country is smaller, that perhaps there is the ability to enact change faster. And that sounds really promising and looks like you are certainly making headway in that area. Now, Mark, We absolutely have to come on to talk about podcasts. And given that we both have podcast shows, I mean, yours is the Purposely podcast and I love your strapline interviewing inspirational people doing good. And I I think it's quite apt that I'm now interviewing you as an inspirational person who is doing good in the world.
0: That's too kind. I don't feel like one.
1: (laughs) No, you absolutely are. But I'm curious to hear, Mark, tell us about your inspiration for the show itself and how did you get started?
0: Yeah, I, I love talking about my podcast. Um, Go so, for it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? For a long time now, I've, I don't know, the same, the same is the case for you, but I've been listening. I love running. Someone years ago, this is really starting at the beginning, but years ago, someone laughed at me. So I was, I was working for the Terrence Higgins Trust. And wasn't in the best shape. I was probably um, hit the London nightlife too hard. Uh, and someone we had marathon runners, and someone said, "I said I was going to do the London Marathon." They laughed, uh, and I was like, "Ah, I'll show you." So that started. I didn't do it, and that started a huge love affair of field, running. So running then met. Listening to stuff and music, I like, but I prefer listening to people speak more. So, an obsession with podcasting or podcasts, which actually is a relatively new phenomenon. Actually, so I remember having to sync my iPod with whatever stuff I was downloading, and that being difficult. But I listened to a lot of entrepreneurial podcasts, and it had a slight obsession with people who had overcome challenges to really smash it in life and create a company, sell it for a lot of money, or just turn their lives around. And then when I came back from the UK recently, I had a time to reflect, certainly during COVID, which is around how could I do two things, which is shine a light on all those inspirational startup stories, but in our sector, the charity sector, you know, for purpose, not for profit, but also on a really selfish level, how could I, to reenact my conversations I used to have so my most recent role in the UK was head of foundation for the St James's Place Charitable Foundation and I would go to London and have four or five fantastic conversations with inspirational people and when I reflected got back to New Zealand and reflected on those stories and who they were I was like wow that's there's some great content there those people are incredible like Dr. Sarah Fain, who ran a charity that connected sort of Hertfordshire and and Afghanistan, or Mark Johnson, who was going to end recidivism, or you know, all these incredible stories. So I actually, and I, I realised that kind of for me on a personal level, I could connect the UK and me back up again, it would be purposeful. So that's kind of where the name came from, the conversation would be purposeful. And then you know, like, I can't keep all these amazing stories for myself, so let's share them. And then you sort of go on that exploration journey around how do you do this? Because me and technology aren't necessarily friends, which is kind of an unusual thing for a podcast to say, but it's a constant challenge for me. But, hey, the one thing I'm really enjoying is the conversations and just kind of put those charity founders or leaders on the same platform as the kind of digital digital tech people or the entrepreneurs that get a lot of the limelight. But yeah, really, really loving it. And sort of, you know, I'm 25, 26 episodes in, my wife's been incredibly patient and our life is crazy. So I'm CEO by day, four children mid-evening, and then from sort of nine till one in the morning, it's podcaster Mark and it's recording, marketing, but yeah, but really enjoying it.
1: That's just brilliant. I must admit, I'm a relative newcomer to the world of podcasting, but I really love the medium of podcasts. And as you say there, Mark, it really enables you to essentially bottle the inspiration from a conversation that you had, and then spread that message to a much, much wider audience. And that was certainly my motivation for starting this podcast, the charity CEO podcast, was to have conversations with inspirational charity leaders like yourself and spread messages of best practice, of overcoming challenge to other leaders in the sector. And I think it's a brilliant way to communicate with and you know, really engage with an audience.
0: Yeah, just on that, it's, I don't know if you find this and, I, and you probably do because it are often quite long, aren't they? So, you know, mine is sort of 45 minutes long, mm-hmm. but I would run for an hour and I'd really connect. Like, and I, I I've, I'm a strange individual in that I'm quite a visual person, but at the same time I read on audio, I really connect with the person and it, and there's a much deeper connection than say watching a video for me. And yeah, congratulations on your podcast. Cause I think, no, thank you. But I think both you and I have probably been on similar journeys around technology, but what is possible because of modern day technology is quite phenomenal. Like I I was producing the early episodes just with an iPhone, effectively, and a pair of headphones. It's got a bit more complicated since, so but and that's including publishing, you know, which is phenomenal that we can do that in this modern age and not predicted by me 20 years ago.
1: I think it's Tim Ferriss who said that there is always an audience for long form uh, and podcast is certainly sort of a deep dive long form. And I find it the medium that is most easy to consume as you say you can do it when you're running you're out and about you can stop you can go fast you can go slow and it's intimate because the person you know most people listen with headphones or earphones and sort of you feel like you're having a a really intimate conversation
0: yeah you feel like you're part of it don't you just run last thing you'll be quiet about podcasts but if you ask me the question what would be my uh, advice for people wishing to take this up this don't value sleep i would say probably a good thing if you've got a day job I would say also do something authentic, do something that really you, a topic that you love, people that you love speaking to, if it's an interview format, but you've got to love doing it, you know, and you've got to love the the subject matter, I think, and that will come through and kind of something that you, for me, it was, when I got into the conversation and I realized that I knew a little bit, which helped me with it. And I think that's crucial too.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And on that point of launching your own podcast, do you think more charities should look at launching their own podcast in order to get their impact stories out there and in order to engage with their supporters more?
0: I absolutely think so. I think the only thing I would say with that is try and go with, with entertainment in mind or, you know, also in, certainly engagement in mind. Because I, when I did my early sort of episodes, I kind of went with facts more and then realized, I think, that people were more interested in the story. So I think I would have hundred percent. In fact, we're doing that at HeartKids. So not uh-huh. surprisingly, <laughs> not surprisingly, we are working on a series at the moment. Not not with me being the interviewer. I'm going to step aside, but I'll, I'll certainly help with production. Our podcast, and I think this is going to be hugely vital, valuable to our our members, our service users. But it's going to be focused on adults who were you know born with CHD. They've overcome, like Kylie, you know, hurdles with their life, and they've doing something awesome. They've got some a career, they're maybe still doing sport. They've had a child where they didn't think that was possible. So yeah, watch the space. But Heart Kids New Zealand is producing one of those at the moment. I think with it, you just need to be really careful that when you're interviewing people, if that's your format, because not everyone does interviewing, that person's got to be comfortable because you're not you're not trying to be an investigative journalist. You're just trying to share their story and uh, you're going to be comfortable that they're going to share their story. So that would, that's the difference between, I think, a charity doing it, being right or doing right by their service users or their clients or their members.
1: Yes, I think it's really important to be respectful of the stories and in any context, you know, not just in a podcast context, but even when we are creating case studies uh, that talk about the impact of a charity's work, I think it's really important that the beneficiary or service user's story is told in the way that they're comfortable with and respects their journey.
0: Mm, absolutely. Uh, a podcast we've done recently, which is kind of people talking about their experience, but sort of being very clear that that's just their experience and it's not necessarily representative for all and would be something to keep in mind. But yeah, I think I think a great thing for charities to do.
1: Yes. And talking about journeys, Mark, I'd like to now come back to think about your own leadership journey. And what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first becoming a CEO?
0: I think it's possibly not to say too much, you know, like not make not to make quick decisions, to take bide your time, take your time, listen and learn. And you know, a lot of people will say the same thing around your first hundred days, which charity CEOs or any CEO of any anything or boss of anything would say they get that time. Because you've got you to really see it from your perspective and understand what's going on. You've also, I think, got to build relationships with people. There might be things that you make quick decisions on. Don't bow to the pressure, maybe, of the trustees who have hired you to do something quickly, you know, like because ultimately whatever decisions you've made, they've got to be your decisions, like the buck stops with you. And that's challenging. I think it's, it's a relatively lonely, it's probably a um, – a well-used term, but it's a relatively lonely thing being a charity CEO because lonely because you're, you've been hired by a board, but you're not, they're not your peers. You have your team that's working for you, but ultimately you're their boss. You have typically relatively limited resources. So, you know, to do business as usual, to do change, to do development is is tricky. You often don't have big departments of people to help you. Like in my previous role, I was sort of one foot in the corporate sector, and one foot in the charity sector. And we did, you know, we I had resources, I had a human resources team, I had an IT team, and my computer failed to go down and get it sorted. And often in the charity sector, we just don't have those luxuries. So I think to counter that, it's really important to get really good people around you, even if they don't work for the organization. Maybe they're doing it pro bono and really work on building that support network, you know, or and all resources support would would make a real difference. One of the things actually I have, and it's been a real, it's been brilliant. I've only been, as I say, in the role relatively short space of time, but we have a CEO support network where we meet five times a year and we talk through issues and it's Chatham House rules and everything that's set in the room stays in the room. But I think those are really important when it's kind of a relatively lonely role. And and then I'll pause for a minute, but one piece of advice I got from my mother-in-law, Claudia McVie, who was uh, CEO of a charity called 10 of us in Wales, a cancer charity. She did this and she, you know, basically instructed me to do it, which is a note from the CEO every Friday. Now it sounds ridiculously simple, but it, I found it hugely beneficial and really valuable because it's informal. It's a chance for your team or your stakeholders. Like I've got my board on my distribution list, I've got the employees, I've got volunteers, and it's whatever's happened that week, whatever's, and it mixes between strategic stuff, service delivery stuff, what's happening in the funding space. But a practical tip would be always to do some form of communication that is real and authentic and, and is about you. And you can kind of, you can, you can gain real value in that. And people see you as a human being. So I think that's one of the things with the pandemic and all this from home working. Leaders are suddenly seen as very human all of a sudden because you see, you know, the backdrop of their bedroom. You see what they're wearing. It's not always formal. And I really like, I really like that. And uh, hopefully, my emails. I think it's been well received. I've had some great feedback from it.
1: Yes, I I know what you mean. I mean, I used to do a Monday morning pulse with you know gather everybody together who was in the office and just have an informal chat about what was coming up for the week. And and obviously, sort of in the in the pandemic situation where everybody's working from home, that's not really possible anymore. So a a Friday afternoon note from the CEO that then goes out to everybody in the organization, I think it is a great way to connect with everybody. And certainly on, on social media, we've seen a lot of charity CEOs be a lot more prolific and a lot more open uh, about sharing different things. And that's been great to see. And I absolutely agree in terms of it's important to have a, a network and collaboration. In the UK, we have Akivo, which is the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations, that I think is is great and, and sort of facilitates a lot of this collaborative working. And so, yeah, it's really it's really refreshing to and and pleasing to know that actually in New Zealand, in the sector, you also have that kind of support and collaboration.
0: Yeah, hugely important, I think, because you know, CEOs are human too.
1: absolutely (laughs) i like that the ceo is a human being too so mark we've come now to the end of the podcast and i just want to ask if you have any final thoughts or reflections i mean what is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation
0: i think we have a a wonderful sector i've loved you know looking from afar and i love the Never more needed campaign. I've loved what people are doing. I think people are being more open. They've been more collaborative. And I, I've used this before, and it it's probably fits in with my own personality. But yeah, let's let's think more less about egos uh, and logos. I know you very kindly shared that on one of your previous podcasts. But less about egos and logos, and let's think more about mission and who's life we're trying to help and change and if we're not helping them change their life and we're not making an impact on that particular cause then you know stop i remember coming across a charity that had a defined stop date you know then they're kind of their mission was going to be over and i think really analyzing why we're doing it how we're doing it and are we delivering on our mission is crucial that's certainly something i'll live by people first mission always Is something I'm trying to live by. And it's a constant battle, right? Because people issues are everywhere and we're only as good as our teams, but the mission has to be the most important thing. And for us, that's our CHD members, our CHD community. And, you know, in five years, 10 years, their lives are better because of our support and they feel more informed. They feel more connected. They have hope for the future maybe through research or other things. So yeah, that would be my thoughts just to summarize.
1: I love that. Let's put aside logos and egos and focus on delivering the mission for all the beneficiaries and service users who the charity is really there to serve. Mark, this has been such a great conversation and that's such a great note to, to end on. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. A massive thank you for listening to Purpose Your Podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying bringing these stories to you. Visit our website, purposelypodcast.com. Join our tribe. Leave your email address. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please hit subscribe. Please leave a review. Really appreciate it.